Welcome to another instalment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Asop Pacinian, Aisha Kamori-Bitch, and Dritten Salayofsky to discuss how important is cybersecurity. The views shared on this podcast are the speaker's own and are not representative of their organization's views. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading-edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Before we get into the topic in a bit more detail, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So, Asot, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Asot, and with Asot, I work at uh, a set of companies ranging from gaming to parking to actually environmental fintech. I'm currently working as head of IT and security, and uh, basically everything that's related to and safety, security, and how do you uh, navigate through that is something of interest of mine. On top of that, I like to test things, uh, enter locked doors, uh, try cages with tigers, and uh, a special interest of mine is the stock market. Perfect. Sounds good. Um, Aisha, would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Aisha Kimori-Bish. I work as the Information Security Manager at Bill Hop. They're a fintech company where you can pay your bills using your credit card. And we aim for both private, small, medium enterprises and corporations. Uh, I love everything information security, very nerdy. Um, like listening to podcasts, both security ones and other especially parental podcasts, as I have two kids. But yeah, that's me. Lovely, thank you. And last but not least, Dritten. Yeah, thank you, Abby. Um, this is, uh, yeah, first I want to say thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be discussing this topic with everyone here today. Um, so I'm uh, based out of Stockholm. I uh, work for a uh, global financial services and advisory firm, um, and I've up the merger and acquisition practice for uh all things private equity and corporate uh, transactions. So, um, you know, to be born and raised in the U.S., uh, lives in Sweden by way of my uh, amazing wife, uh, who also is in cybersecurity. Um, I started off in networking, uh, moved into architecture and engineering, and now primarily focus on strategy and operations. On a personal level, um, as I said, I'm here by way of my wife, uh, have a older dog, uh, a little man, and uh, which means I'm a happy dad, husband, donkey dad oh, that gets no sleep uh so uh, again i guess it's dark outside right now so that's okay but uh yeah thanks again for having me excited to be uh discussing this topic with everyone here lovely um so now that we've got a context to each of you we'll move on to the topic in focus you've all provided a question um about how important is cyber security and as usual we'll work our way around the room where you can ask each of your questions and give your thoughts as well 
So the first up is you, Asia, and you asked, what are the main factors for successful implementation and improvements of cybersecurity in an organization? So tell us a bit more about your question. Uh, well, my question comes because you hear a lot on the news of um, data breaches, events, and working in the industry uh, for a while, um, I've learned some of the successful factors that I think, but interesting to hear what the other two think uh, in the room. But I, I can start with um, my point of view. Uh, I think in order to make any changes in an organization, whether small or big, leadership has to be on board. And when I mean leadership, I mean leadership support. Um, it's very hard to make any real changes if you try to change from the bottom up. If leadership's on board, then uh, everyone else is on board. And as we know, um, information security, cyber security is people, technology, and processes. It's a holy trinity. If not, if one thing isn't on there, then it won't succeed. Um, a personal point of view uh, is making this area that we're working from um, it's all well and good talking about threats but the average office worker might feel it how does it affect them so i, I think you have to get people involved in their own reality in the own world and seeing how each one of us um can contribute and also resources always helps um but uh, last but not least um to be aware that's all about uh, I don't know if the other my two uh, guests uh, have uh, thought about the psychological acceptance curve to know that changes doesn't come immediate. But that that's just a little thought process that I've thought about uh, in my time in this industry. Yeah, I, I think you know you, you bring up some very valid points, Aisha, and uh, yeah, I think the the big one that I you know continuously see, and and I think it's very. Uh, you know, kind of factually now prevalent that the, uh, you know, SDC in the U.S. has now mandated that uh, the board has a cybersecurity body or individual. And now I believe by 2025, I think there's a proposal of an actual uh, committee, a cybersecurity committee sitting at the board level. So um, it's, you know, it's coming in slowly. And I think that's extremely, I feel strongly that it's extremely important to, um, you know, emphasize that if you don't have the the direction from leadership, that nothing, you know, the the boat doesn't move. You can have a bunch of individuals, you know, sitting with paddles on a ship, and you know, each trying to go their own direction. But until that sail starts flipping the right way into the wind, that boat's not going, you know, in any direction that it really should be going. Um. So yeah, great great point on that. I I completely, you know, that resonates with with my thoughts and, and exactly what I see in the industry. And I thought to take it actually even one step further, as uh, talking with a couple of CISOs, uh, which were working in different situations, and of course it is management that is going to be putting most of their resources as they're, they they navigate the resources. But it also is, I was thinking if it's luck or knowledge of someone who can bring it to their attention, how much and how important it is because management sometimes has uh, other things to talk and discuss and they neglect uh, that aspect sometimes completely, sometimes actually uh, 
partially. And then if you are able to have staff on deck that at least is able to describe the situation and the resources needed, you're having a higher chance of the management being on board because it always is the management that is going to decide or put their foot down on everything that is going to happen. But then again, how, how are the basic decision is sometimes the information that gets to them internally. And, uh, as we've seen time and time again, sometimes the information coming externally, be it a large breach or an event happening in the market and everyone's starting to panic and, ah, yeah, security, we need to focus on that and so forth. In calm times, people would probably neglect the risk saying, ah, the risk is too low or we're secure enough. So it always is this combination of what kind of an resource you have on deck, who is actually guiding the management and of course the management's level of understanding of um, the risks they're taking and the actions they need to take to prevent that kind of as a point towards uh, a teamwork within the management and whoever's working with the risks. Yeah. I think, you know, my, my thought there is, as you nailed, you, you touched on two things here. Uh, the first one being is, is, you know, the, the, the right individual driving management, you know, whether it be a CISO or, or it's, 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 it's a organization, um, or a significant event, like an external breach. I think the most common, uh, the most common key factors there are all financially driven. And the only time you get the attention of the board or executives is when money is involved. And so, um, I think the most important aspect of, of, of this is really, if, if you can, tr if you can translate or relay or explain the risk to the board on the financial impacts, um, that's when you'll get their attention. And at, at the point of a breach, uh, is kind of when you, know, you see all these conversations around, oh, it's, you know, now all the job wrecks are out and the money is being spent. Um, but to the, you know, I guess to the defense of the board, they don't have the, the proper committees in place to understand what the financial risk. And with all my experience of, of board presentations and DAX and Fortune 1000 companies, I can tell you that the board presentations that are coming to them in front of them uh, do not relate uh, appropriate and proper risk at a financial level. Um, and, and I think it won't change until we do. Um, and then turning it into actually the, the value proposition of investing in security and what that actually means, because we're going to a, to a product-driven security environment when we think about what privacy means to the consumer and how we can relay that to the consumer and explain to them that investing in security and privacy actually become, be, you know, adds value to our product. Um, and I think until we can do that and relay that financial risk and value proposition, um, it's going to be a challenge to, to, to get that buy-in from executives. Uh, I, I can follow uh, up on that with it because you talk about management support and we all agree, I think, that management support is key to succeed with cybersecurity in any organization, whether small or big. But I think that the difficulty for someone in our positions that work with security is how do you practically get management support? Because uh, in some arenas, you can't even get close to that level, depending on specialist or if you're CISO, wherever you are. And I think it starts with, um, from my experience, it starts with if you start informing the board in a certain way, it can be if you happen to uh, be in a technical driven department, if you are able to go in front of a CIO or CTO and get that direction into management, as uh, Britton said, it's about presenting the value, start informing them about things that's going on, um, vulnerabilities that can affect them or 
whatever, stop. Because the financial, even though I agree that the financial side of things is important to, to get that full understanding, it can be very hard to measure something like reputation loss. How do you manage, how do you present that in terms of money? Because unless a data breach has happened, you don't, it's hard to know what the actual consequence could be. You can, you can compare yourself to someone similar size, but that doesn't mean that that's what the impact's going to be on on your organization. So I think start informing about yeah things that's happening, things that you can um, spot. Oh, these are the vulnerabilities that can affect this. This is these are the threats that we currently face. Whether or not it's uh, legal threats, um, any financial institution, for instance, especially in Europe, you have all these regulation. Uh, not only GDPR, but you have Dora, you got ICT, you got everything, and especially in Sweden as a uh, fintech company, for instance, uh, we want the uh, regulation from the Swedish Financial Services Authority. So, so it's that part, but then any threats. And I think if you start um, showing, painting the picture a little bit, then maybe you can eventually go into the financial part. But I think starting with someone and finding your supporter on the management team, then you have a way in, I think. And you will notice who that individual is the more you inform them on what's going on. I actually agree also with both what you just said and Dritan's point on the product and way of going. As uh, you can always see that um, maybe we or everyone is trying to get support by uh, by the negative and aspect of of risk, for instance, and threatening or not threatening, but mostly fear of uh, losses. Whereas it's an interesting point that there is also is now the consumers are requiring and it can also be an advantage. So I've seen when, uh, for instance, certifications and investments and and, and risk avoiding endeavors are actually also taken as a positive part for the business. So that's probably affecting the gains as well. So it's most, it is the financial where most, but it also can be actually uh, tackled by either you tackle the fear, uh, which is a part of the game, just like insurances, where you kind of always think, am I overpaying for the security that we have? Can we lower the payments for insurance that we have enough? Do we really need that? Nothing happened, so why are we paying this and so forth? From uh, from that to, can we use that? Can we be more secure, certified, and uh, and stand on better ground that our, we can gain customers? I guess that's what Dritan meant. That uh, that's the, where the market is actually also probably going, as in terms of how you're tackling security within organizations and. What are the reasons? Yeah, shifting the mindset from downside risk, like you said, the ne- negative aspects of, of cybersecurity to upside risk of, of what it means to actually make investments um, for the consumer is is uh, super important, uh, you know, to, to get that message across. But just, you know, I'm not sure how long we have on this question, but I think the last thing that I'm going to say here is, is you know, uh, just kind of an example of what I've personally seen is, is you know, going into a client, um, that was was conducting an assessment uh, investing in cybersecurity. Uh, one of the key investments that they're making was you know in the millions 
uh, of a manufacturing plant uh, just outside of a major city in the U.S. Um, and when we looked at that, it was based off of a risk assessment that was conducted in the penetration test that identified critical risks within the machinery, um, the OT environment. Um, and so we double-clicked into that to understand exactly what that meant. And uh, we, we found that the that environment had no internet connectivity. Uh, the assessment was, it was done on-site. There was a guest environment completely isolated. Um, and they had no guests. There were seven employees that visited that facility uh, who were longtime employees. And we measured the risks at a different from a different approach. Um, while that was a critical risk, uh, you know, whether it's a CVSS, um, it actually wasn't critical to the business. Um, they were focused and you know had, were going to invest millions in, in remediating that, uh, you know, and instead we had them shift their mindset to say, okay, you have medium and low vulnerabilities on your payments and and e-com site, and you probably should have make better investments on that side of your business. Um, because of your risk, overall risk is, is very low. Um, although the criticality of the vulnerability is, is, is high or critical. Um, so it's really, it's really talking to the business to help them understand why appropriately investing, uh, means, uh, something to them from a financial perspective and not necessarily just that we're just going to put more tooling in place and just put walls after walls after walls. But that actually is a case where you have a good professional on the team making a good assessment and the management trusting the professional in their uh, assessment. So it's part of the game where the management needs to trust the, the professionals they hire and work together to get to the a good, great state instead of either constantly going against each other, whereas seeing the professionals in the security field uh, being the ones trying to drain more money or requesting more than needed. Because I doubt that anyone in the security field will actually be uh, trying to take the blanket to that level that it is illogical, especially given the cases that you had uh, in recent years. A lot of a lot of uh, issues and a lot of uh, breaches could have been avoided if security was tackled to the level, at least to the ones that... Uh, the staff proposed i think I've, i read i'm not sure if it was cook that the remediations tactic and uh, precautions were proposed they were just neglected so the neglect is usually comes from risk assessment from either the management or in general and then uh, avoidance of uh, of those risks by just saying ah it's it's good enough we'll have it good enough it's uh, we can bring the level that we have right now instead of actually making sure that all the proposals or all, all the criteria that is uh, advised by the knowledge that we have right now are are best to be supported and dealt with within and every company. So it usually is the trust towards the requirements, towards the uh, professionals assessing from the management that is needed and probably worked in your case to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, that's, that's a huge, that's a key factor in anything that we do. Right. But I mean, I guess it starts with what I just said is like invest to begin with as an investment in resources. So, you know, if you don't invest internally in your proper resources, then you're not going to get the, the outcome that you want. And oftentimes, you know, to, to benefit myself as a consultant, it's often brought from the outside in, um, and, and the investment isn't made internally. So, 
Yeah, I totally completely agree with with that sentiment and and uh you know it's something that I think companies need to do better at. Perfect. We'll move on to the second question then. And Drusen, you asked, have you seen a change in cybersecurity threats and general prioritization within the Nordics given the geopolitical environment, particularly impacts in the region? So tell us a bit more about your question. Yeah, I'm a storyteller, so I'm not going to be as fancy as I should and bullet out my thing. So, um, you know, I think the the topic for this uh, podcast is really like how important is cybersecurity. Um, you know, and I, th- I think it's top of mind for both uh, professionally and personally. And in today's world, it's uh, it's political. Um, you know, start seeing our personal information, you know, being shared without our consent um, to attacks on critical infrastructure. I think we can all agree that it's you know it's an important topic that that touches all of us, uh, you know, significantly today. And uh, in my ongoing conversations with clients over the years, uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, uh, it's been interesting to hear kind of the change in sentiment around cybersecurity, particularly here in the region, um, as I knew here for the last two years. But you know, I've had maintained, uh, you know, projects in, in the region, so I've had executive, uh, you know, conversations here. Um, while we've seen spending gaps close over the years, uh, we actually see uh, still an average of 5% gap between the U.S. spending and in Europe, and particularly here in the Nordics, even less. Um, you know, about five years ago, I believe that spending gap was uh, was as high as 20 or 25% between the between the U.S. And I think that really resonates with with the with the thought process and investment here. But my strict hypothesis, driven you know through my interactions, as I said. Um, is that you know, the neutral view of this region, the progressive mentality, um, as well as the quote neutral state within the political space, has made this region you know left of a target in in years. Um, and I feel we can all agree that this has been uh, this has been the case uh, as if we haven't been a glaring target here for hacktivists and foreign states in the past. Um, with that said, of course, you know, outside of this region, we've seen things like Stocknet, selling solar winds, which has impacted indirectly this region, um, and and most recently, water treatment facilities in the U.S. that, that have been uh, attacked. But these geopolitical attacks serve as a reminder uh, that essentially nobody is safe. But most recently, and, and kind of coming back and circling back to the really the question directly is, is Sweden and Finland's bid to NATO? Um, you know, we, we've seen, uh, you know, I've seen attacks uh, and posturing on, on corporate and government sites, and and most of it, you know, so all of it is, is really is public. Um, you know, this is essentially, you know, this was foreshadowed by the both countries, Finland and Sweden, raising their cybersecurity threat level uh, back in May um, in preparation for their official bid uh, in tomato. So as we kind of see a shift in trend, uh, set by what some call kind of forced position of the region, um, yeah, we'll continue to see, I think, the region being a higher target. Um, the global sentiment you know, has begun to shift and now attracting uh, the likes of hacktivists in foreign states. I think I saw in the media um, about a, uh, you know, the the Turkish and, and the burning of the uh, the holy books and what that actually means uh, for you know, threat actors uh, to come back from a hacktivist perspective. And of course, the foreign states are given the geopolitical situation that we're in. I think the, the key points here are that we're not safe, right? Cybersecurity is, is more important than it's ever been. Um, and the evidence uh, is here to show that, you know, it, it isn't getting better, but rather worse. 
um, and that that we as a society practice, uh, you know, it's it's important that we practice good hygiene as as a uh, society, but it's even more critical that that the public and private sector invest in securing our country's assets and infrastructure. Um, and and you know, this is all emphasized by how important cybersecurity you know really is today. So, you know, the topic is really just you know, the question is is really around you know, have we really thought about the implications, um, or and, and not the kind of the yeah, the basic understanding of what this uh, you know situation means for us. So I'll pause there and hand it to the others to, to comment. Yeah, I can uh, go first. Um, I would say, I because Sweden has been luckily spared. I don't think that big of a thought has gone into what the impact is as such. I think it's as you said, Tristan. Uh, it's it's coming now in terms of when you see councils being. Uh, cyber attacked uh, being unavailable and I think the, the focus is coming uh, so Sweden is uh, opening its national cyber security sector which is a big step in the right direction uh, personally I, I would have hoped that would have been 5-10 years ago but it's better than nothing <clears throat> but yeah I think the impact is still unsure most places as you said we need a good level of cyber security hygiene but I think for most uh, councils, etc., I don't think they know what that is. What is good cybersecurity hygiene? If you don't know what that is, or even your own posture, I think it's very hard to know where to start. Where do you start? Your your council in the suburbs of Stockholm. Where would you start? I think that that's the challenge of Sweden, at least um, because we're so decentralized. It's councils for themselves it's the region for themselves um so no i don't think we realize the impact yet we're starting to but unfortunately i, I hope not uh, but i think it can go a lot worse become uh, before it gets better is the is the council and just for clarity purposes i think maybe there may be some mm -hmm. folks outside of sweden council mm -hmm. you mean by by city municipalities right uh like yes stolen on yes. and yeah um, yeah. So, but the, I guess the question to you is, do you think it's, is it that they don't know high you know, baseline hygiene or is it the investment? I don't know the country and investment of municipalities and, and councils well enough to answer that question. So I'm asking you, is it that they don't have the investment from the outside or they just don't know? Well, the investment comes from the people living in, in the municipalities. That That's where you get the, the money from uh, and I think people who lived here for a while and grown up here, you know, probably the same everywhere. I don't think Sweden is an exception. That the public sector wheel goes very, very, very slow. And I think in terms of the cyber security threats, we're going at a quite high speed. And I don't think the councils um, maybe can keep up. But that's just a personal opinion. I've not been in a council, but yeah. I haven't worked with security in the council before. Makes sense. I actually think that uh, at this step, it's always going to be a catch-up game because we have political changes happening faster than other changes that should at least prevent threats in that case. So if we have the book burning case, as you mentioned, or any other threat appearing, then everything is a reaction. So I think even the change of percentage of spending, as you said, is also somewhat of a reaction. You have 
laws coming in, you have regulations being introduced, and then everyone starts putting money in to make sure that they don't get hit by whatever is possibly coming to them. And EOS is a bit more strict in this case, and then it also is, uh, there's been high liabilities there, but I think that Europe is also catching up with that because cyber becomes a, a separate space on its own. Uh, and it's in 10 years, it has changed drastically for us to take uh, a lot of care in it. But when it comes to political changes, uh, I don't think that we were ready or anyone was ready to say, ah, we're in a good state. Uh, but I have noticed that the municipalities, at least some or the government, they just started hiring and security specialists. Um, maybe just because LinkedIn shows that much more aggressively, or you can see that they actually put some some investment into that. And of course, we can suspect that the governmental agencies are slower or uh, less active in that field. Uh, but I think that <clears throat> the, the political game is actually the one that uh, is going to make the, the hardest push in 2023, because we're not uh, threatened by anything else other than external parties at this time around. I think that there is only 2025 where is something that we're going to look into and other threats. But in this case, I've been to a, a summit where the Prime Minister of Ukraine actually was discussing the security and the threats that they faced internally in the country. And uh, at the summit, we, were, we discussed how spies and agents actually are working within the countries and how do we protect from them and in general how security is taken care of by the government. But at most, uh, when we talk about municipalities and governments, it's, it's political versus uh, protecting private information per se. So I guess that political questions are to drive in that uh, for them. Now, when it comes to organizations and uh, larger enterprises, uh, I think it still is fear uh, for losses, of course. So it's a protection mechanism. It's damage prevention versus damage control. And uh, it can constantly see by the lawsuits and fines that uh, to avoid them, Organizations have to have mechanisms in place and protection in place for uh, for them to avoid the damage. So it's mostly is whatever's coming out to protect the customer data, protect the, the information security space that they will act against that. But it always is a reaction, just like with GDPR and uh, the changes within the ISO. So I think that that is what's driving it. Uh, the changes for us. Yeah, fantastic. It'll be interesting to see, I guess, what what uh, you know what the next twelve to eighteen months bring uh, bring here in in the region, um, and uh, and what those impacts impacts may be. Um, it's it's always interesting to to kind of predict those you know, as as we start the year off. Yeah, great, but thank you both. I just hope that the political uh, situation calms down, and then we can breathe out and. With at least some security that we have to focus on uh, other threats than that.
Yeah, I echo that for sure. Perfect. I think we can all agree on that one, to be honest. It's been a bit of a turbulent time. <laughs> um, but we'll move on to um, a sorts question now. And you asked, where do you see the focus to be in the coming years when it comes to cyber and information security? So tell us more about your question. And it actually now ties into what we just discussed as um, where do we see uh, the changes within the regulations, I think Dritten touched upon that a bit, and uh, where do we see the focus within the information security space in general as to well, what we'll try to protect and how do you see that being the case when it comes to personal information, data that has been transferred, and uh, how do we protect the data given that we have data centers in different countries, the tensions between the countries, and, and in general, what's, what's the drive for the companies to protect the data, protect the information, and, and put finances into protecting the data. And, I recently had a couple of um, professional interviews discussing the focus of uh, investments in cybersecurity by organizations when it is coming to uh, penetration testing, when it comes to incident management. So there are different different aspects that the companies are trying to both buy and sell. And then I think that there is quite a number of players that are growing given that there is the need in the market so i'm curious as to where do you see the need in the market going when it comes to cyber security and information security yeah uh, if, if i would say the market i've I read your question uh or and thought about it so this is my hopes for the next coming year whether or not that will happen i hope so but i would say I would hope somewhere in terms of connecting into the subject we just discussed in terms of the geopolitical threats, I think we're going to, it's going to be more of an investment and keep on discussion in terms of how do we protect ourselves nationally against um, the geopolitical threats, even though we all hope it will calm down. Um, 2022 show that it hasn't shown any signs of slowing down, unfortunately. Um, so that is something I think we're going to uh, keep on focusing on. Tying into that, uh, I hope from a national level that there will be more efforts in teaching what cyber hygiene into the average citizen. Because most people don't know. I think we who work in this industry try to teach our near and dear ones, remember passwords, don't use pulled passwords, etc, etc. But nationally, I there should be more initiatives to teach people how do you keep a good level of cyber hygiene. Most places you have to have passwords to identify yourself, for instance. Uh, also to start in school, um, anyone with uh, kids in school these days, you know, they kids as young as two, I think, start using the tablets till they go into school at seven and they get tablets in school they get accounts to um software as a service that the school uses with passwords 
So I would say from school up until all age, uh, we are being uh, targeted for fraud, for instance, nowadays. And also I say ransomware keep, I think that discussion's never going to die out, unfortunately. Until uh, cyber criminals stop earning money, then that's going to be a discussion point. But that I'm, That's my predictions. And hopes. Rather. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, you, know, you, you you list all the things that kind of you know, I mean, cyber security professional would love would love to see you know year after year, um, which which is great. And uh, for me, my my uh, where spending is going, I think mine is a little less uh, less optimistic in the way that in the sense that we're going to see you know obviously seeing a downturn in the economy, um, that has significant financial impacts across the board. Um, we are seeing a emphasis on you know ESG um, and where that's going. I think a combination of those two things are going to really drive the future of where we're going in cybersecurity. I think at least for the immediate future in the 12 to 18 months, um, we're going to. You know, my thought is that we'll see a lot more investment in critical infrastructure, both in the private and public sector, um, on securing those assets, especially in this region. Um, as we see, uh, you know, the prior topic of, of geopolitical. Uh, you know, insecurity within within the region. Um, we're going to see you know the the public sector especially invest highly, um, and on the private sector you're going to see you know acquisitions of of those assets, um, and then the propping up of the security of those, um, and then on the you know operational kind of the 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 ground level of things, um, I think what you'll see and and just historically speaking, you know, with with other individuals that are older than myself and and seeing and economic downturns, what that means is. You know, obviously, uh, you know, we're going to definitely see, you know, individuals losing their, their jobs. Um, that's inevitable. As we know, we've seen it in the U.S. We'll start to see it here, I think, if we haven't already. Um, and, and what that means for companies is, is cost savings and, and carve out of organizations um, and, uh, you know, elimination of products that are within their within their company that, that aren't driving the revenue that they, they, had, they had planned strategically. You know, Google's done it, Amazon's done it, on, on Facebook's even done it. Uh, what that means for them is, is you know, retooling, uh, licensing, rationalization, um, and unfortunately it means the elimination of unneeded uh, tools within the environment, and that even means security tools. Naturally, that's going to then mean that we're going to be investing more in the AI, so we're getting rid of uh, resources, uh, assets, bodies, um, and we're rationalizing and we're, we're looking at licensing and tooling and organization. So the only thing you can do then is is look at how that can be automated. Now, none of this I agree with, um, but I think this is what I see as happening, which essentially will increase the risk in the immediate future, but it is where I think we're going to be headed in the long term. Um, so I see kind of those th two things playing out uh, from a security perspective. So do you agree that uh, given the economic situation, uh, leading towards a recession if not already in it, the companies will take higher risk. And given that they are either going to transition to automation or actually just a lower resource count, uh, even in security and basically taking on a higher risk. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, if you look at it from a PNL perspective or, or from a, you know, looking at the balance sheet, I mean, IT is tied, you know, security spend is tied to IT, IT spend is tied to revenue. Natural when revenue goes down, IT and, and security spend goes down. Um, so so it's an inevitable byproduct of, of you know, a downturn economy. Uh, you're going to have to see it and things are going to have to squeeze. 
Uh, so whether it's you know whether it's just resources or assets within the environment or a combination of both, um, historically you know that's what we see is is you know across the board you see cuts on on you know on cost centers if you will as as I cybersecurity is a cost center IT not necessarily always the case. And I agree actually with this uh, so the the cuts on the cost centers are affecting and uh, all sides. I have tried to check. And there is a site which lists all the layoffs and cuts in larger companies where you can actually even see the positions that they cut. Fortunately, security wasn't that largely represented, but I do feel that this this is going to be the case and with any recession, even though this one's going to be a, a unique one because we haven't been uh, in the recession with so much cyberspace around us before. 2000s don't count, 2008 was slightly different. So in this case, when we pull out the resources from places where in the current political situation, we should probably start to invest more to protect ourselves, it's going to actually create uh, more risk. And I really hope that uh, we don't end up having a, a lot of bad things happening to us because from one side, companies are taking a higher risk from another side we have uh, a higher chance of threat from an external or governmental entity from one side of the world so it's it's actually a risk on risk i would see would say and hopefully that will diminish with the political tensions uh, being resolved if possible i'll give it to Aisha, but i have a, yeah. I have a comment about that but but go ahead yeah. before before no, if, yeah if, if i can add in terms of budget and spend i don't think necessarily that the security budget is going to be uh, the first one cut uh, although i do think that new investments are probably not going to happen as much uh, which i think is probably what you maybe what you're trying to say i think you'll be on a status quo which in that terms can increase the risk which is something you have to be transparent about with, with whoever sets uh, decides the budget whether it's a CFO or management whoever that is to say explain these are the going to be the risks if we don't invest and then end of the day it's the business who owns the risk um, and I don't think in terms of cutting resources in terms of people I don't think security uh, staff will be cut either as as such because as we uh, we know, security people, we're not that big of a group. I think there's about, um, I think last thing I read was up 3 million uh, people are missing from open positions worldwide for cybersecurity. So I think companies will be very careful in cutting those kind of roles because if you if you get cut from one company, you find something else and then you, they might sit there without anyone. So I think in terms of budget, I think it'll be status quo, probably not so much new investment, but I don't think uh, security staff will be the first ones to go. Yeah, no, I absolutely trend. agree. The first ones to go, so we've seen at least if you're active on LinkedIn, are, are the recruiters, right? Um, I've, I've seen, unfortunately, a significant amount of recruiters being let go, um, and I don't think security is going to be the first one. But I think what's really another, another angle here is is uh corporations are being smart about this right um and you just you know you just touched on the topic of the shortage of cybersecurity. 
And uh, when COVID actually first started, I was at uh, EY Ernst & Young, and uh, the, at the time, the, the U.S. Chairman, Kelly Greer, got on a all-hands call to, to, of course, as a leader, calm us all down and say, look, no one's losing their job. And she, and she talked about a really interesting scenario that I think resonates today uh, with the approach that corporations are taking. And that approach is we made big mistakes in 2008 where we let go people, we let go of people, which impacted our ability to grow after the recession came through because there was just, you know, massive growth and not a shortage of, of resources. And so we couldn't hire people quick enough to meet the demand. And so we actually, uh, we, we, hamper our ability to grow at the rate that we should. So because of COVID, what we're looking at doing is keeping as many as possible so that on the other side of COVID, which was an extremely intelligent move because it actually, you know, had an opposite effect of a recession. And I think what, what the, and the reason I touch on that is because corporations I feel today are thinking, you know, we have a shortage of security. The last thing we want to do is, is have a negative kind of sentiment and let go of these individuals because we're going to have to turn around and hire them again when we do have the funding for it. Um, so they're doing their best to, to try and, uh, you know, do the, have the best uh, intentions, right? Like I think Google had, I mean, all of them, right? The, the big companies that, that are, that make it public had some very, you know, pretty lucrative packages when they let go of their individuals. Then I'm fairly certain if they're letting go of, uh, you know, software developers in, you know, and AI or specific areas, or cybersecurity that they're doing something to ensure that they are welcomed back uh, and they feel welcomed back and and I think that's a that's a point that that's important to note right I mean recruiters are you know there's a, there's a lot of it recruiters out there uh, everybody should be treated fairly um, but I think their their thought processes is we can always go and recruit recruiters when the economy turns around um, today beyond our the being a high risk and important to organization. We want to hold on to the assets that we have that are hard to get. And I think your comment there does go into the question that I wanted to ask you guys as well. Um, and I want to know what are the hiring challenges within cybersecurity? So when you do have that growth or when you are looking to add to your teams, are there any challenges in terms of certain checks that you need to do, experience that candidates need? Is there a lack of talent within cybersecurity? Um, so what are your guys' opinions on that? Oh, it's a very good question. I would say the biggest challenge is in that this pool of available cybersecurity individuals is not that big. It's very small. Uh, if I tie back to when I did my master's course uh, and I finished 2018, I think we were about between 50 and 70 that started the master's program and 20 that graduated. So that year we, we there's not that many new, I think, start like new individuals coming out. But saying that, there are more uh, like training programs for cybersecurity professionals. But I think one from uh, from the other side, as uh, a potential employee somewhere, is I think organisations might not know or maybe how to formulate um, what they actually need. Uh, I see like uh, dual job descriptions where they want someone to be both the technical security expert and the information security expert all into one. And I think once you've worked for one in this industry, you know that's being two experts in one role can be very challenging. So I think organizations need to be more clear in what, what kind of 
uh, role they want to recruit for. I yeah, agree with that. Yeah, and because we have uh, met cases where we're hunting for the same type of person, and being that you always have, I want more for less, and it always is the case where, and you have a restricted budget or somewhat constrained budget, but you always would prefer to have someone who is versatile in different aspects. And then when you filter it down, you suddenly end up having the same people in the list. So and there's not so many players when it comes to um, enterprises offering solutions the same way for people if you're tr trying to hire. So at some point you even may try to go with friends that you're um, trying to headhunt from other companies because that's probably a better tactic than trying to find someone on the free float. Uh, um, but also is that uh, the hardship is that, as I just said, that we have we don't have many people graduating. It's either seen as a hard subject or maybe not that popular amongst people who want to take up that uh, field of study. So I'm hoping that uh, we will have an influx at least from not from maybe education, but people moving to this. Uh, sideways i've known people who work within the development teams who move to pc SOs and cio so you can have actually people seeing that oh there is a gap there just like we had the gap of developers a couple of years ago and and filling up the gap there would be probably a attractive and strategy for those who want to maybe change careers or get hit maybe by the recession we're having so maybe that will be a way to go Britain. yeah i mean uh you know those are both you know both of you have very valid points um you know there there's only a, a small pool of individuals right and attracting them is yeah everybody's essentially doing the same thing um with the exception of obviously attracting them with a the financial you know with uh financially i personally think you know from, from you know, just personal experience uh is is making sure your organization is attractive. Um, you know, I think that's so important in today's world. And and it starts, you know, everything from the, the old work from home thing that's now shifting back to going to to to, uh, to the office, to just having an, an office that people want to visit. Um, you know, the the big thing in the U.S. is like you know being a part of Fang, which is Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google, and I'm missing one um, within that, but. Yeah, the, the reason why everybody wants to go there, of course, is salary. They pay really well. But you know, if you if anybody's ever seen the office or you know, privileged enough to be at one of the offices, I mean it's like a big playground. Food is free. I mean, the chairs, you know, are top of the line. Like you, they have sleeping pods. There, yeah, you, know, you can work out, you can do yoga there. I mean, it's just like it's an extension of your life. Um, and while that's not necessarily the culture here in this region from a Nordic perspective, um, you know, there are the limits. But I mean, I've been into offices here that I walk in and, you know, the windows are, are as small as my laptop computer um, and I get depressed as soon as I walk in and, you know, you can't pay me enough money to go work there and go into that office. Like it just, you know, it doesn't, the financially doesn't matter. Um, you know, if I'm in America or here, if I don't want to go into the office because it just doesn't feel right, um, I'm not going to, you know, you're not going to be able to hire me. And I think it really starts with just being the right organization, of course, you know, following you know, the, the principles of just being, you know, a, a good organization, but it's really attracting the right talent at the company, you know, directly from a company perspective, who is, you know, who are these companies? 
you know, I get I get called up all the time, like, oh, we have a company and the name is this, and they're in cybersecurity, and I had heard nothing about them. And you know, for me, I want to know that they are leaders, or they're going to be leaders, and, and I think that's a big big coin of attracting the right talent. But do you believe that uh, work from home, given that uh, we're having a shift to going to work from office, we've seen H and M taking four days a week and so forth being so working from home being a attractive point for people in the security field. So do you see that as a uh, track uh, as a selling point for companies within the Nordics? Because you've mentioned the fan companies, but they are really huge and they can invest in office infrastructure, but the Nordics, we don't have those corporations being represented. So to, to such a large extent, and it's only very few who have that luxury. So while you're rightly noted that sometimes the office is not attractive, uh, the talent, and given that we have a recession going in, so do you see that work from home being the kicker or um, a, a selling point for people to uh, joining company. I'll, I'll be political in my response and just say that flexibility is important. Um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't, it may not be work from home or maybe work from home. It may be, you know, free lunch. It, I mean, there's a lot of different things, but I think it's flexibility. It's understanding what, what the people want and they need. You know, I personally like flexibility. Like I, I don't want to be required to do one thing and continue to do it. Like I don't, I, I don't think any of us here on this call have gotten into this industry to do the same one day task day in and day out. And I didn't get in this industry to be a robot and go into the office day in and day out and go sit down at a desk and stare at a screen, um, you know, and, and do the same thing. So um, I think, you know, you have to understand your people and to, you know, I think the big, you know, the, the one other thing that I want to touch on is probably pretty controversial, but, you know, is the investment in your people is the investment in your product. And what I mean by that is, you know, the reason why banks and and uh, Nordic companies, specific ones, can charge so much for their product is because they hire the talent that they do. You have strategy firms, you have business consulting firms, you have product companies that are primarily American-based, but they are more expensive, their product is more valuable, and they're able to provide that to their employees, but they also attract the talent that is required to provide that product and that service to their customers. So there needs to be a shift in a more service-oriented, customer-focused mentality so that you can drive price to bring employees that essentially support your business to bring that product to the client. That's the difference that I see when I talk to individuals that are, you know, or companies that are necessarily in the business to have a change in the product vision of what they're providing to their consumer. So to answer your question in short, it's it's flexibility. I would, um, yeah, to, to build on what uh, you both said, I think in terms of Swedish companies, I don't think promoting working from home is a, is a benefit as such, because I think it's now everyone uh, looking for a job is kind of expected that the flexibility is there. I think it, it's the opposite. Anyone who would say working from the office is a requirement, I think that's a deterrent. I've seen companies struggling to find people because they said oh, on-site present is mandatory. Or there's plenty of other companies, especially in Sweden, that offer the flexibility um, and the whole work-life balance. 
Um, yeah, but I, I, and I, I'm, I'm seeing a big shift in that, even in the Nordics, in the U.S. especially, that they're starting to require people to come in, you know, mandate that people are in, you know, three, two, three, four days a week. Um, and that just going to result in, in that. But, you know, I think you're exactly right. You know, if someone comes to me and says you have to come in the office five days a week, that's a, that's a straight up, absolutely not. That's not going to happen. And I think you, uh, going. Oh, sorry. No, sorry, you go. I've seen companies going, uh, when you mentioned lunches, no, I've actually seen lunches getting, the free lunches getting smaller or uh, sometimes even uh, not becoming free anymore. Um, and, but exaggerating to a larger extent, there's going to be some kind of a clash as it feels from the professional pool and to companies where it comes to them putting and their expenses and tying up their belts uh, in what they can offer to people as uh, perks and gifts because the recession is somewhat here to keep to getting attracting the talent that actually uh, prefers flexibility and the perk and that's kind of a feeling i get from from colleagues that move from one company to the other and usually it is just like you said the flexibility or the environment that they're moving to because and then at the end of the day, they're doing the same work. They would like to at least enjoy the environment where they do it and how they ask to do it. So even at times where, and I heard a comment that even if I show up to the office five days a week on my own, there is a difference that I do it on my own and I'm required to do that. And the result is the same, but it, attitude is uh, is what plays a role here so you've met you actually touched the point where i think that 2023 being post-covid and and a recession approaching a uh, year is going to show us kind of how are we gonna act and navigate within the environment yeah, I, I was said my my last finishing words. I would say it depends how you frame it from an organization's point of view. If you say you are required, uh, that that sends a bad tone. But if you go with more the tone of we like to cooperate in person, we would like you to come in two days a week, preferably the same day, so we can see each other. I think that's two different messages of saying we would like to see you, comparing to you're required, you have to. I decide. So I think it's messaging is very key. Always and culture. It goes to closing. My closing statement is is uh, you know culture within your organization. So you can hire and and you can bring on talent, but if you can't retain them, it's uh, the investment to to bring on and train individuals is is extremely high. It's something like three times their salary the first year. Um, and, and if you can't hold on to people, um, then, then it's a lost lead. And and so yeah. On besides the culture of plastic things. But yeah, that's my closing remark. Good people. Brilliant. Thank you so much for all those questions. Um, and we're going to leave the podcast there. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I just want to take this opportunity to thank Asot, Aisha, and Drissin for providing your insights into the topic. And thank you to the listeners as well. If you would like to get involved in one of the upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at abby.stokes at evolution-nordics.com. See you next time.